Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. Got a great conversation for you today with Byron Bland, who I will introduce here in a second. Uh, This conversation kicks off a series on peace, specifically as we enter into a time that is uh, supposed to be filled with peace uh, in the holiday season. But if you look around with our current political and cultural landscape, it may not feel very peaceful. So I thought we would unpack peace for a few weeks and look at it from a few different angles. Uh, Heads up on this one, I do have a few sound issues between internet connectivity issues, a squeaky chair, a little bit of feedback. Uh, The sound quality is not as amazing as it could be on this. Sound quality aside, I think this conversation is definitely worth your time. It is with Byron Bland, who is a fellow at the King Institute at Stanford University and also a senior consultant at the Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiation. Byron has spent his life and his career negotiating conflict and working towards peace in some of the most contentious global situations, including Northern Ireland and the conflict in Israel and Palestine. Out of those experiences, Byron and his colleagues emphasize the role of relationship in resolving conflict and achieving peace, and they specifically came up with four questions that begin to foster peaceful relationships. And so he'll unpack those four questions for you and list them at the end. Uh, They're also listed in the show notes, so you can check those out as well. If you like what Byron is saying, if you want to read more about that, uh, he has recently written a paper on the role of globalization and our current political conflict, which is incredibly interesting, and he sort of hints at and teases at throughout this conversation. That paper is not public yet, but he has passed on a copy and said that I could distribute that as requested. So if you are into what Byron is saying, you want to read a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper, uh, shoot me an email at a better story podcast at gmail.com, or you can contact me through the website or Facebook or Twitter, and I can get you a copy of that paper for you to check out. So with that, enjoy the conversation with Byron Bland. All right. Well, why don't we start with uh, giving a little bit of background of your experience? You have years of experience in peacemaking globally. Uh, tell me a little bit and tell the listeners a little bit about how that got started and where that took you, where you've worked in your efforts to bring peace uh, locally and globally. Yeah, it depends in somewhat how, how far you want to go back. And so I, I began, you know, a real intense interest in, in peace when I had to confront uh, my involvement in the Vietnam War. Uh, and I was, uh, I, I was in the chaplaincy, or at least had to leave from from the army to go to seminary, uh, with 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 the goal of being a chaplain when I graduated. And uh, and in the course of that, I, I went through some basic training and realized there were certain moral and religious issues that I had to address uh, before I I went into the army, in fact, service itself. And uh, because I didn't feel that 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 that. In in the in the army or in combat was not the place to ask them answer them. Uh, it was they needed to be asked and answered before I engaged in that. And and over the course of my seminary education, I spent considerable time looking at the literature on war and peace and the theological discussions that had taken place there around just war theory and or pacifism. And, and trying to sort out where I stood in those regards. In, in the end, I, I decided that I wanted to apply for a conscientious objection discharge from the Army, uh, not because I felt that soldiers didn't need ministry, but I didn't feel that I could serve as a chaplain within the chain of command. And so uh, I asked because I had to be in the chain of command in order to be a chaplain, I asked to be discharged, and I was granted that that discharge. Uh, part of the of the question that you're asked in in that is, you know, how meaningful is this to you? And you have to demonstrate that it's a you know that it, this is an issue that has bearing on your life. And I I took that quite seriously and felt that in doing this, and I was making some commitment about my sense of ministry and my sense of, of vocation that I would be in, and that this was not a short-term, but was a long-term commitment uh, that I was involved in. 
uh, a part of that, and, and very close to me in, in the inner city uh, church that I had, had to do with um, uh, the elderly and, and, and hunger and food issues related to them. And so when I moved from there to Stanford, I wanted to continue that interest and concern. And so I became involved in the uh, ecumenical hunger program and was the first chair of, of that board of directors. I also wanted to look at what, how, how do you begin to study, look at, and, and, and seek peace at an academic level? And so I started uh, a peace studies program with a number of faculties. Oh, actually, it was the peace studies class with a number of faculty at Stanford, and then taught that for uh, uh, around 25 years. Uh, and so a lot of my interest and focus was was sharpened by that sort of engagement with students and with other faculty about what were the challenges of creating peace in, in the world. At some point, I had the opportunity to move from campus ministry, which I was doing at Stanford, to the Center on International uh, Security and, and what later became cooperation, but was at that time arms control because it was more in the Cold War. And, and my specific role was to look at and raise and discuss ethical issues uh, related to deterrence and nuclear weapons and their use and, and such. Uh, and I was there when the Cold War ended. And the, the shift focused to how do you deal with the internal or domestic conflicts that began to erupt around the goal as the Cold War ended. Uh, at that time, a, um, uh, we also then shifted, I should say, the focus of our peace studies class to try to begin to address those questions. Uh, the director of, of, of CSAC, which is what it was called, uh, was, uh, was, was Irish, was born in Ireland, uh, and uh, his, he had a close friend who was a Jesuit in Portadown in Northern Ireland, and that Jesuit uh, came to a visit, and David Holloway, who was the director, asked me to host his visit, and I did. And Brian and I created a, sh a friendship, and I remember as he left, I said to him, you know, the center I work in ought to be able to help you in your... Uh, in your work in Northern Ireland, and he said, "Well, how? What do you? What? what well, how would it help?" And I said, "Well, I don't know, but if we keep talking, maybe we'll come up with something." And so that started a conversation that actually still goes on today. Uh, we began to look at how our center, as a place for dialogue and conversation, could help serve some of the needs he had as he tried to bring the parties together in Northern Ireland. And also encouraged him and gave him some backing in, uh, to in order to pursue those kinds of conversations and, and relationships. Uh, at, at some point in 1990, actually 1997, uh, Brian, the, the Jesuit, took a sabbatical. And he spent three months with us out at Stanford. And at that time, we, as we discussed things, we realized that there was going to be an agreement. Uh, that the, the two governments wanted, the, the ceasefires had occurred, they were trying to bring the parties together. At some point, there was going to be an agreement because the two governments wanted there to be one. So they were going to tell the parties in Northern Ireland, sit at the table till you come up one. Now, we didn't know whether that was six months down the road or six years or, in fact, even 60 years down the road, but it was it was coming. What we were certain was that there weren't the relationships on the ground that would sustain any agreement that the governments might reach. And so Brian created a group called Community Dialogue. And at that point, I moved to being the associate director of the Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiation. And so we looked at how could we pair the researchers that I knew and were involved with, with the practitioners that he were involved with in an interesting conversation. And we defined an interesting conversation as being that if researchers knew everything that practitioners knew, what would they find interesting? And if practitioners knew everything that researchers knew, what would they find interesting? And it was the intersection of those two things that people were interested in that shaped our uh, conversation. 
Now that that started us in in the in a journey uh, that eventually led to the formulation of the four questions that that you and I have talked about. Oh, well, let me also say though, and to finish that up, is that I also have spent over 15 years working in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which which we we drew on on three conflict areas. In the late 80s, if you asked what what were the most intractable international conflicts, they were South Africa, the, the Israeli-Palestinian, and Northern Ireland. And so we began to look at those as areas which might offer us or frame some sort of issues that we could look at. And, and in particularly, the kind of fall of apartheid in South Africa was important, although I've never worked there or visited there. And the principles that sort of came out of this um, were based out of those experiences, correct? You didn't take, you took assumptions into these experiences, but your philosophy and your techniques and these questions kind of rose out of that. Is that right? That, well, it, right, yeah, it, it started with something, it's an interesting thing. Uh, um, it started when I asked a social psychologist, Lee Ross, to tell me, and when we, were, when we were building the peace studies class, how would a social psychologist look at conflict? And Lee said that uh, the so, a social psychologist would ask what stands in the way of resolving conflicts that you could, in principle, resolve. Uh, and so why, I mean, if, if you're in a situation and it's in the interest of both parties to take a particular step, then there's no theoretical or practical reason that they shouldn't make that move. And yet all the time in the real world, you find they are unable to do so. And so what stood in the way of, of them making those things that were in their interest to do? That, that then became the, um, uh, known as the barriers analysis. And so we asked what stands in the way. And it became the, the center of, of SCICN, of its theoretical interest when it was formulated as one of the Hewlett Centers uh, for Conflict Resolution. And, um, and so we, we brought that approach of, of, well, what stands in the way of reaching agreements? What stands in the way of forming better relationships? What, forms, what stands in the way of not resolving conflict, maybe, but moving to a more stable place? And I think that, that the initial research that was done created three kind of buckets that, uh, that so that there were strategic, uh, uh, there was a tr uh, strategic bucket. And in, that usually revolved around what's called a mixed motive negotiation, so that you have a desire to claim value and you have a desire to create value. And the conflict in those two desires uh, create strategies that, that often become barriers to reaching further agreement. So they, they, they encourage the party to play hardball, to, uh, to, to not be open, to uh, do a number of different things in the strategies of their interactions with one another that created barriers to moving forward. Uh, there were also a set, and it was a pretty large set, of, of, of institutional barriers that had to do with agency problems. So it might be the interest of of the community to reach a, an agreement, but it's not in the interest of the political leaders to, to, to reach an agreement. And, uh, and there also then were barriers in communication. So I may know something and all my side may know something, but you may not know that. And so there were lines of communication also sometimes create barriers. But the really innovative one was, was what largely came out of the work of Lee Ross and his colleagues, and those were what were the psychological uh, barriers that largely had to do with motivation and cognition uh, that that prevented the parties from uh, reaching agreement. And so we took that analysis to Northern Ireland and brought it to our dialogues and with community dialogue uh, uh, about what we knew about conflict that we thought they might be interesting. One of the really first things we learned was that Although those barriers made sense within the academy, on the ground, it all boiled down to building better relationships. And so we began to talk about what are the relational barriers that stand in the way of, of progress, of moving toward peace. Uh, what we then identified were four particular kinds of areas or questions or themes that prevent movement. 
And that and those became the four questions. One more thing about that. What we would now say is, is something a little bit different looking back. And, and this comes with 25 years experience in this. But it, it's a little saying that, that actually is, is everyone mostly says intuitively. They say, yeah, of course, that's right. But it isn't something they necessarily think about. And that is that it's not agreements that make for peaceful relationships, but peaceful relationships make agreements possible. And so how do you give shape to the relationships that would allow the parties to make the agreement that would create and stabilize peace? Well, yeah, I think that's one of the most compelling things about your writing and the work that's come out of that is the relational aspect of it, because it, I think it speaks to folks on a pretty intuitive level. One of the things that you've written about or you talked about was in those in that sort of relational move, differentiating between adversaries and enemies, which uh, is a, a big difference. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit before we jump into those four questions? Yeah, yeah, sure. That actually came from, from trying to figure out what was the central focus of peace studies. And, um, and so there was one, uh, the, 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 the founders of the, of the enterprise of peace studies tended to divide around whether they thought uh, peace was negative in its orientation or positive. So they talked about negative peace or positive peace, and then debated which one was, was more significant or important to focus on. What negative peace did was, was define peace as the absence of war, and then tried to look at an, act on, an analysis of conflict and looked at what conflicts tended to escalate into war, what conflicts tended... How, and then how could you de-escalate conflicts uh, so that they were no longer war? And that, so that was one uh, kind of focus. The one on positive focus was that it claimed that peace was the presence of something. And it was mostly, you could sometimes people would say, well, it's the presence of social justice. But it was mostly the presence of cooperation, of, of how do we cooperate around achieving certain ends with other people. So what goes into the into the formulation of, of that cooperation. Both of those, as I, as I began to look more deeply and think about my involvement in them, see, seemed to not answer a, a deeper question. So there were, and on the negative piece, there were conflicts that no matter how heated they got, were never gonna be violent. And there were conflicts that were violent at, at the drop of a hat. And so I, I felt rather than just putting conflict on a continuum where you had peace and cooperation at one end and, and conflict and war and violence at the other end, that they were actually separate phenomena. And so what distinguished them was what was the notion of enemy, that if I thought someone was seeking my destruction, it created a certain kind of, of conflict. Uh, even if the conflict, if, if the interests involved in it were not were not all that substantial or, or significant, so even in small conflicts of interest, they get pushed to the extreme and to violence. If I think that they involve my existential existence, uh, when with regard to to cooperation, cooperation always begins with a we, and so you've already, in some sense, solved the question of enemy relationships when you begin in cooperation. And so I felt that, well, the one thing you need for a war is an enemy. And so why don't we look at peace studies is can you, can you transform enemy relationships into some other kind of relationship? And then the question became, along what axes does that take place? Yeah, and out of that, you obviously didn't create the term, but adversary sort of comes about, which I think oftentimes people think enemy and adversary are probably a synonym for each other. But the way you're describing it, enemy almost becomes this dehumanized figure that is abstract and killable and something you can commit violence against. Whereas an adversary seems to be more of someone who's on a different of a different persuasion or opinion, but is still very much a human being. Is that a fair way of putting it? it, I mean, it it's, a, it's a fair way of, of putting it. I, I would give it a little bit more um, a structure to it. And in and, yeah. and and that an, uh, an adversary is somebody I disagree with. Okay, but I can resolve those differences. What I can't resolve those differences is if is if what if, if what that person is doing is seeking my existential ex destruction. 
either as a person or as a community or as a culture, then I have nothing to say to someone who I believe seeks that. I have nothing to talk to that person about. And that I am always a hair's breadth away from violent exchange with those people. So, so I think that if I can get people to be adversaries, that, that, who were once enemies, that, that's a real accomplishment. Uh, and, and, and then you have some things in principle that you can try to resolve, but it makes every difference as to whether I think we disagree or you're trying to destroy me. Those are two very different perceptions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and yeah, and so we've alluded and you've alluded multiple times to the four questions, which are sort of the the model uh, that came out of your experience. You want to talk about that and kind of walk through those four questions? Yeah, yeah. The most, uh, the, the most important question is the one we call the shared future question or the peace question. And, and, and that's the one that has to be solved. Uh, the others tend to feed into that a bit. And, and one way of getting at it is, is, is to ask what would happen to me if the other side got what it really wanted. And I have to be able to answer that question in the impositive. Uh, that, that, I mean, I'd have to be vastly positive, but it has to be I wouldn't be terribly off. Well, I wouldn't be bad off if that were to occur. If the other side got what it really wanted, I could live with it. And, and, and if, you, if, that, if that's not the case, then anything, any movement or any agreement will be fleeting. It won't be lasting. As soon as I find that I couldn't live with what you want or what you seek, then any agreement I made with you will be broken. And so the fundamental question is, uh, can the parties, when they hear the other side talk about its dreams and goals and aspirations, say that if that future came about, I could tolerate it, I could live with it. Now, what becomes interesting in the, in the other question is it becomes the responsibility of, of the party to explain to the other side why its dreams and goals and aspirations are something that it shouldn't fear. And it shifts the focus from talking about what I deserve and what you should give me to what I am offering the other side that they might live with. And, and until that happens, nothing of any significance is going, going to happen. It, it, has, it has some interesting, uh, I don't want to call them byproducts or corollaries, but, but one is that the shared uh, future question creates a domain of mutually bearable futures. And then what we do is engage in politics to decide which one is the better one to go. Uh, so we oftentimes say that a vision of a shared future is not a shared vision of a future. Shared vision of the future implies agreement. We don't try to establish that, but assume that politics will work something out, uh, muddle through, create some kind of arrangement about that. Uh, but that, that, so the goal of politics is to create a shared vision. The foundation of politics is a vision of a shared future, that we are pursuing mutually, mutually bearable goals and aspirations. So it creates the domain of politics, and it also creates a, a domain of trust. If you think of trust as encapsulated interest, that it's the perception that I trust you because I perceive that, if, uh, that as you pursue your goals and interests, mine are encapsulated in those such that you further mine as well. Well, that's, that's in many ways is another way of talking about a shared future. And so what the domain of a shared future does is establish politics and then creates a domain of trust. The, the subtle in, shift in that is, is that most people think that in order to have, I have to trust someone in order to create a shared future with them. But actually, you have to have a shared future with them in order to trust them. One of the ways you framed it up or sort of um, almost reversed the question in one of, the, one of your papers that I was reading was the question of what role does my adversary have in the future that I envision? It hit sort of close to home in some ways, even as I think about our current sort of political divisiveness and that sort of stuff, that the goal is not to eliminate them or to turn them into me, but it's to actually find a, a place of value for them in that future. You know, that, that insight emerged in, in relationship to two experiences that I had. Uh, one was with a, a group of loyal, loyalist and Republican paramilitaries who I was talking with. Who, uh, who, who the Republican was 
saying how how they had loyalism on its on the ropes that it, they were they were moving ahead. And I said to the person, and it actually changed him from that point on. You know, you you in your vision of what you want, you have to have a strong, not a weak, um, uh, loyalist identity. Because if they have a weak, if loyalism is weak, they can't deliver any of the things you need. So I, I can I can think about a future in which I make my opponent weak, but I but but then I make sure that they can't deliver any of the things I need. So in order for to cooperate with them and to get their assistance, I, I need to have I need for them to be empowered, not disempowered. Um, the the other had to do with a, a, an also a discussion in which uh, it was a political discussion and one where in this case it was a loyalist who stood up and asked uh, the Republicans in the room, "Where am I in your vision of the future?" So where do you where do you think? And, and, and what I am is is I'm a convert. So I recognize you're you're right, and who you are, or or am I asked to to invite it out of the situation? Uh, um, you know, I have no role. I'm expelled from the political life. Uh, but but then tell me if if that's not the case, then tell me where I am, as as a loyalist in in your vision of what you want to have happen, where I have my own dreams and goals and aspirations, and I'm able to live that life within your dreams and goals and aspirations. What he didn't address was that he also needed to articulate the place, this place of the Republican in his. Um, and so it's a mutual thing in which I have to be offering the other side something they could live with, something they would, they might not, they might at times have to grit their teeth and bear it. But for the most part, they would have to feel that if that future came about, I wouldn't use violence to overturn it. Yeah, your your questions and your principles are very pragmatic and realistic. They're not... You're not pie in the sky hoping that everyone is hugging by the end of it. You're hoping they're not killing each other by the end of it is what it seems like. Well, you want to keep going with the questions? Uh, we've hit the first one. The second one has, has to do with the question of trustworthiness. And so why should I believe you? Uh, you've been telling me for, in the case of Northern Ireland, 25 years, that you couldn't make any of the concessions you're now saying you're willing to make. So why would I believe that's true? In, in some ways, that's the question of how do you get from here to there so that you, you, you're never able to move from one point to another point, usually in giant steps. You usually have to take small steps and small movements, and each one of those movements is going to advantage and disadvantage uh, the sides to different degrees. And so you're faced at a situation with why should I trust you if I take my gun down from your head? You, you you then take your gun down from mine. Or, or do you decide that with your gun at my head and my, and, and my gun down, that's a good place to stop until I get more trust? So how, in some ways, it's the question of how do you follow through on that to an end? Even though I may have an advantage, I want to exploit that advantage, but I will pursue the shared future that we talked about. I think that one of the most important and overlooked um, uh, situations that arises that is, is the ceasefire. And so usually the parties make a ceasefire because they disagree about what the future, uh, will, how it will unfold. Uh, I, I, if you take the, Israeli, the Hezbollah and Israeli ceasefire of several years ago, Israel made it because he thought that the history would unfold such that they would be more powerful. Hezbollah thought that it, the situation would unfold such that they would be more powerful. Both those things can't happen. And so you have to make sure that whatever the situation is, uh, it unfolds in a way that both sides find it to be bearable. What we, what we tend to call that is this agreement uh, that mass disagreement. So I agree at one level, but I mask the disagreement that we have. And, and that, that has some practical implications in that if you're at a corner in Belfast and it, it's been a, uh, a, a hot spot, it's been a, a flashpoint for conflict, both sides would usually come to it and say, how can we reach some agreement uh, about how we're going to manage things here? 
But failing to have a vision of a shared future, each side then begins to wonder, once they make that agreement, how the other side is going to use that agreement to gain advantage over them. And so the push to, to reach an agreement also often is counterproductive without it being grounded in the sense that the long, there is a long-term vision of a shared future to which we're committed to. The way you're describing this makes it sound like it must be a fairly slow process in terms of actually building that trust and establishing that relationship. You know, the, the, uh, in all of the, di- I mean, there are lots of things that happened in, in the dialogues that we do. I mean, very rarely were the kinds of themes explicitly discussed. Mm. But when there was movement, uh, it was usually around one of the axes, one of the four axes that we we identified. Mm. And so the, the the parties in the discussion, you know, we we talked. I mean, we still have two more questions to go. Yeah, yeah. But, but we talked about in community dialogue uh, um, that there were two strategies. Sometimes they call them phase one and phase two, but they involve two different notions of of reconciliation. In fact. Um, and so one set of dialogues was focused on uh, what do you want, why do you want it, and what can you live with given that others disagree. And that was that was looking at uh, there's there's a there's an there's an agreement that's being pushed by the governments. Uh, there's a, there's a future that's being pushed by by them. Uh, where am I in that new future? That's no, that's the new Northern Ireland. Uh, do I have a place in it? Um, how, how do I find my location? What is your reaction to me? And so a lot of what went on in that dialogue was was watching people, re- making statements and watching people to react to them and then watching their reaction to your statement, but trying to figure out where am I? Am I and am I in a safe place in, in that, that environment? Uh, Phase two, and, and you shouldn't take these things as sequential, uh, it was about uh, how do we build the relationships to live and govern this place? Uh, what, what, do, what do we, I mean, we can do all we want to, and, and but if I can't work with you to create a future, this place is going to be pretty ungovernable and, and, uh, and violent. And so how do I create those relationships that, uh, that allow us to work together. Sometimes you can call them good working relationships. You can call them partnerships. But but there's the sense that we're going to work through this. And so our four questions mainly focused on how do you build those relationships. The um, the other questions were centered around the three questions of where am I located in 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 this. Let's keep going uh, so we can. Okay hit all the questions. You want to go to question number three, unpack that one a little bit? Well, let, me, let me just say that I think those first two questions deal with deal primarily with the issue of enemy relationship. And, and the second two questions uh, largely look at how do you create exchanges when reciprocity is not possible? Uh, so that the normal way people have had deal with conflict and resolve conflict is there's some sort of equal and uh, exchange of stuff. Uh, I give you this for that. In conflict resolution languages, I give you something that you value more than I do for something that I value more than you do. But it's that sort of exchange that, that takes place. If, if you can't figure out what reciprocity is, what do you do? How do you move forward? And the two things that we found that were, I mean, there are lots of things. One is power is involved in it. Uh, humiliations involved in it, but the two that offered the most for conversation and dialogue had to do with loss acceptance and how do we deal with just entitlements. And so the third question is basically how how, how do I accept the losses that an agreement uh, requires so that I can make the concessions that it needs. And uh, and and that was that came out of. Actually, one of our researchers who, who won, um, he, well, he would have won. He, he actually died before the Nobel Prize was given, but the Nobel Prize was given for that work with his partner. And, and it had to do with loss aversion, of, of the role of loss and, and, how, and how it is important and triumphs any, any possible gains that we might have. 
in it. And, th and that's in, in many ways because the losses are immediate and the gains are theoretical, abstract. I mean, they may happen, they may not. I have no direct experience of them. But the losses are immediate and painful. And so they tend to trump any sort of perspective gains that might be uh, had in this thing. And what we felt was that if you can be concrete about the losses, negotiation theory uh, encourages log rolling in which you take gains and losses, roll them together, and you make an, a, uh, an exchange of those packages of, of losses and gains. Uh, what tends to happen in real life is that people take the pocket the gains and try to negotiate away the losses. And so uh, it isn't necessarily a, a useful uh, strategy, although it can happen sometime. In, in the thing. But, it, but from really serious intractable conflict, it, it tends not to work uh, because any any sort of uh, gain that I give you, the the party, the the receiving party feels like, well, that's just what was needed. It was what was re justice required. Uh, but there's losses over here. What have they got to do with? I shouldn't have to. Uh, I shouldn't have to accept them. And so I accept the gains, and it becomes part of the status quo when I negotiate without accepting any of the losses. One of the things that you articulate is one of those losses uh, is oftentimes the sense of complete justice that a party feels like they are entitled to, uh, which I think is, is hard to swallow. But can you unpack a little bit where justice fits in with this? Yeah, we, we, we feel that, that, in fact, the pursuit of justice is a serious barrier to resolving conflict. Uh, that, in fact, we've done, uh, my colleague Lee Ross has done a number of experiments in which by adding the requirement uh, that you pursue a just outcome, it, it diminishes the percentage of people who are able to reach a, uh, uh, an agreement. Uh, because you, you, I can tell you, if just reach an agreement, that I could do. When it has to be a just agreement, that, that becomes much more difficult uh, to square in my, in my mind. And so, in, in large part, in, in when, when you're thinking of adversarial relationships or community relationships or, or things where there's a common base, we tend to think of justice as fairness of how, how do we create some kind of a fair exchange about this stuff. But in conflict, we tend to revert back to justice is getting that to which I am entitled. And so what stands the way of my getting what I'm really entitled to is always the other side. They prevent that from happening. And so become the embodiment of justice uh, for me. However, in any agreement that doesn't have some minimum level of, of justice is illegitimate. And so it's really no agreement at all because I may be honor bound or morally bound to change it whenever I could. And so it is a, it's at best a surface agreement or uh, some sort of calm, but it is no deep agreement with any legitimacy. And, and so we, we, uh, we felt that you have to switch it around um, that, in, that instead of focusing on how do I get justice, it, you have to create a cooperation within the parties to address the most egregious injustices that peace is going to impose. In, in any negotiated agreement, uh, the, the, it's going to impose injustices on the, and losses on the party from their perspective. Because if one side win, they can impose all the losses on the other side. Or they can, or they can uh, impose the injustices on the other side. Uh, but if it's negotiated, then some things I thought I really deserve, and some things I thought that I'm entitled to, I'm going to lose. I'm not going to have. And so the question is, how how do you deal with that? If you look at it more deeply, and I, I think that there is that, that the notion that there is a pure justice or a or, or, a, or a true justice is, is really illusory. That what the best we get are, are various approximations of, of really less injustice, that some situations are less unjust than others. Uh, one of the things that I, I used to tell people toward the end of my career was I worked at Stanford for 40 years. Not a day did I think it was just. I, I thought it was worth it most days. <laughs> uh, and and I was willing to to endure the injustices I thought it, but never did I think it was just. 
And so in some ways, the party is how do you instead of how do we create a just settlement, the the the, the task is how do we create an agreement that won't be just, but will be bearably unjust yeah. for the parties. And, and, and I think that that's related to something that you, you have to make the answer yes, which is are you better off in peace than you were in conflict? And if the answer to that is no, you're in serious, serious, serious trouble. So that whatever the parties do, they have to make the answer to that yes. And, and, and I think that notion of, of just entitlements begin to get at that when we look at it and instead say, the question is, how, how do we rectify injustice? There's a lot more you can say, say about that, which is politics is, is rarely about establishing justice. It's more about rectifying injustice. And you can also take it to the point to where you, you say that the notion, the standard notion of justice is that there's a just arrangement and then there is a violation of those arrangements, which you correct. That's almost certainly wrong. And that our experience is that justice pops up outside of any sort of domain or scope in which we think just relationships happen. And so we're constantly trying to figure out what is, a, what is a way to rectify injustices when it is not clear and easy to know what that is? Yeah. So as you talk about this and as you write about it, um, I kind of had two things, two different sides. I don't know they're opposing, kind of ringing in my ears. One was uh, a metaphor that you alluded to uh, in one of the papers that you've written about if you equate justice to um, a destination, say you live in the Midwest, you want to get to Hawaii, where it's this paradise, this ideal justice that you have, but you know that you don't have enough fuel in the plane to get there. And so you're, if you try to shoot for that, you're going to crash in the Pacific. So why not uh, settle, quote unquote, for Miami, which is still a very nice tropical uh, sort of environment. Uh, and you can continue to plan and save and pursue that trip to Hawaii, which I found a very helpful illustration. Um, in the back of my head, and I don't remember the exact quote, but I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, Dr. King's quote about sort of one of the greatest adversaries to uh, racial equity for him was oftentimes white individuals saying, slow down, uh, pace yourself. And that's a <laughs> that's nowhere close to an exact um, articulation of his quote. But does that make sense? I mean, do you feel that tension? Do you hear that tension? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I do. Um, I mean, oftentimes it attributed to Dr. King is, is the saying that uh, justice is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of justice, although he never said that. Uh, if you look for where he never, he always had that much more nuanced uh, than that kind of straightforward uh, uh, statement. Uh, but, but I know that, know that it's a serious issue in, in, in that regard, in, in that if what, you know, in the metaphor, let me go back to the metaphor. The metaphor is, is, is Abishai Margulies, and he writes it in the, uh, in what's called the, uh, the Decent Society. And the background of the Decent Society is, is his struggle with, I, you know, I don't know and wouldn't know how to create justice between Israelis and Palestinians. That it's just too difficult. I mean, I, I don't know how... I don't know how to sort that mix of stuff out so that that you could you could create something that both sides would feel would be mutually just. I would like to. And I have and it isn't that I that I prefer not to. I will, I'd rather take what power allows me to to have rather than rather than accept what justice would require of me. Um, but 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 that I really can't at a very deep level figure out what it is. And so in the absence of that, I have to, have to, what do I do? How do I treat the other person? And, and he highlights that, that it's, 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 it's to create them, it's to treat them decently is really important. Uh, how, how do I show them respect? Uh, what he tends to put things in the negative, and I agree with that because uh, they're easier to identify, but how, how do you create a non-humiliating society? I, I, I don't know. I don't have the resources intellectually, politically, maybe even economically to create a just society. And, and it's not that I don't value that. I, I want that. I deeply want it. I just come up against limits. 
And so in the face of those limits, can I, can I find another destination, uh, Hawaii, uh, that, that, that treats people with non-humiliation rather than, not Hawaii, Miami, uh, where, where Hawaii would leave me in the middle of the ocean. I would fail in that endeavor. And so I, 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 I think that it raises the, po- the point in that there are some instances, as, as, you, as we were talking earlier, uh, having to deal with the issues of globalization, where it's not entirely clear how, how or how you could create the sense of people getting that which to which they feel entitled to. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to bring jobs back in the way that they used to be or to create incomes in the way that they used to be or to create uh, small-town rural cultures in the way that it used to be. That, that may be beyond my ability and our resources uh, to do. But in the face of that, treating people with respect becomes really, really deeply important. I mean, one thing I'm absolutely sure about, people will, will accept unfair conditions if they, if they find that they're, they're treated with respect and dignity, where if they're not, it doesn't matter what happens, they're not going to accept that. And so, and so the importance of that, of, of, of that kind of how, how prior to even uh, uh, engaging in any sort of rectification of justice, do I learn how to treat you with respect and dignity? And afford the things that you're afforded because you're a human being, and I respect that, and honor that, and and I think that that's the starting place for any sort of long-term struggle, for rectifying injustices, which we may not ever reach the final end. Yeah, and as you describe that, it feels like we are at least within uh, sort of modern United States political culture right now, slipping farther and farther from that. I don't want to be a pessimist, but it seems as though. Uh, people are longing for a decent society, but it's easier to uh, want to humiliate the other side to some extent. No, I, I, I think that, that that's a serious challenge uh, for us. Of, of how, I mean, I, I think that in, in part, what, what, when we began, we, we did a project and we looked at it and say, said that, um, that what globalization, globalism is, is, is an ideology. It can be, it can be, conservative, it can be liberal, but it's, it's, it's an ideology related to the expansion of, of markets and connections and communication that, 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 that is globalization. Uh, but globalization are the actual dynamics that, 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 that drive um, things. And so globalization has cleaved societies into, it's created uh, centers that are well-connected within the global markets and financial markets and cultural markets uh, that, that exist around the world. And, and they're doing, and not everybody in them, but for the most part, they are doing fine about it. And, and, and those, are, those are Berlin, London, New York, San Francisco, um, Singapore. Um, uh, th- these places are fabulously wealthy. Uh, and then there are other places that have simply been left behind. Uh, that their small town culture has collapsed. The uh, the manufacturing upon which their uh, um, jobs and livelihood depended have gone away. Uh, their opium uh, addiction, which is ravishing and destroying uh, communities. Uh, there's a host of of things. Which, which leave them feeling that they've been left behind and ignored. Uh, and, and that America, whatever that is for them, has forgotten them about it. And then the, the question becomes, so how, how do you build some sort of politics within those two, two things? And what we, we knew was that, that um, politics rests upon a vision of a shared future. But the, the deep stories that each side tells one another are, are, are vastly different and, and at odds with one another. And so much of conservative uh, or rural, uh, I don't know if it's conservative, but rural America uh, and, and probably conservative America as well, tells itself that, that we're in line and we're in line for the American dream. And it's just over the hill and that line's advancing, we're improving. Uh, we are uh, we're making advances. Our families are are doing well and thriving, and and 
struggling but thriving about it. We're, we're, we're moving ahead. And then all of a sudden the line stops. And then we and then it begins to back up, it seems. And we look ahead and there are all these people cutting ahead of us. Uh, they're cutting ahead of us with the government's help. And some of them we don't think have given the same kind of dues that we have here. That they they they, they should not be cutting ahead of us about it. And so we become resentful of that cutting ahead. Why isn't why isn't we why aren't we progressing? Why are why are people who are international or 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 there as the result of affirmative action or there as the result of 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 global trade things cutting ahead of us and all this, and 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 that's the story they tell themselves about uh, uh, America, um, and I think those those deep stories that I mean deep stories. Um, Arlie Huck's uh, child say that they're, they're feel-ass stories. They don't have to be historically, but it feels this way to people. And, and the things, therefore, people feel about our current situation are at deep odds with one another. And they feel that if the other side's story wins out, I lose big time in this. And so the, the, hot, the, the question that we and the challenge we felt from our other work was, how do you create a shared future in, in that sort of mix and conflict of the deep stories about what we're about? And, and it, it was enlightening to us because we have for years said, you have to, you know, get, let's get on with the task of creating a shared future. And yet when we applied that lesson to ourselves, we discovered, well, we don't really actually know how to do that here. And so what, if we don't know how to create that, then what do we do? And we began to take those other uh, three questions and do an analysis of them to see if they told us something about the features of a shared future that we would need. Uh, what we came up with was that we needed to foster dignity um, so that that uh, whatever we did, we were uh, that ever program, whatever we were about with one another, it was to foster and encourage the dignity of each other. Uh, we needed to safeguard livelihoods, uh, as, as distinct from securing livelihoods. That if you think of of security, security always has an enemy out there, and so my job is to protect myself from that threat. Safeguarding starts with the entity that we want to secure and then talks about how do we secure that. It doesn't necessarily pose a, an external threat that, that needs to be defeated before I secure this about maintaining the integrity of that. And then the, the last one was how, how do we cultivate respect uh, for one another in our daily interactions. And, I, and, and those appear to be a bit abstract and idealistic and let's just all get together and love one another. But I think that the serious challenge that we offer in that is what if policy at, at, the, at the national level was geared explicitly and justified in those terms, that they weren't go-away terms to which, which you'd wanted to do some programming, which really all boiled down to economics. And then you say, yeah, and it also kind of creates respect. And no, no, the focus and goal would be to accomplish those things, to create dignity, to foster dignity within people, to safeguard livelihoods, and to encourage respectful interactions. And I, and, and, and I think it would be a different politics. I mean, I, I, I could disagree and, and honestly disagree and work with working out differences with someone that I oppose politically on almost all levels, but would find a joint project in those things. And so the give and take and cooperation uh, and, uh, the, and, and um, that, that is needed in order to reach and govern a place uh, could be achieved if we're looking at how do we foster those goals. Yeah, those are very different questions than it seems like we're asking politically right now. Well, speaking of questions, I don't know if we ever uh, got to the fourth question or named it specifically, and I imagine listeners are probably 
maybe that could be driving them crazy if they're uh, they're counting here. So you want to you want to name the fourth question here and talk about that before we wrap up? It talked about it. It was just entanglements. And so the four questions, what I'll do is name the four questions. Yeah, that would be helpful, I think. The four questions are the the question of, of vision of a shared future. I mean, are we able to offer the other side a future that it would find living livable and bearable? Um the question of just entitlements, which is, um, how can I trust you? Uh, how, how can I think that you are actually committed to living a shared future with me? Uh, the, the question of loss acceptance. So how do I accept the losses so I can make the concessions that living together requires? And then the question of just entitlements, which is how do, how do we work together to alleviate the most egregious injustices that living together would impose upon us? Well, great. Well, I think we hit most of what I wanted to hit. Um, you kind of brought it home in terms of the current political and global climate at this point. Any other thoughts as you look at the sort of ever-changing um, political landscape? There, there is one, and I, and I want to give you a little bit longer answer. Uh, yeah, please. This one. Um, when, when we brought, uh, we brought a number of people here to, to discuss these issues. And in many instances, we would bring up what's what's what kind of notion or theme, which is called post-conflict peace building. Um, and so we would talk about post-conflict peace building, and right away we would get an, a two anywhere from a two-hour to a four-day discussion, uh, or actually lecture on why their situation wasn't post-conflict anything, that the conflicts that that had existed still existed there, and they still raged. And it wasn't even completely post-violent. Uh, and, and so to, that it was just a complete misnomer to call it that and to think about it in that way. What we meant simply was just a placeholder by the term of, of talking about the situation. But it caused us to think, what is the situation we're dealing with? And, and we came up with the idea of calling it a hostile peace. And, and I, I remember clearly seeing a video in which uh, it, was, it was about the religious differences in marching in Northern Ireland. And so a, a, a woman is interviewing a, a couple, a, a loyalist couple, about why, you know, what's going on here about stuff. It's early in the morning in Belfast. It's 8 o'clock. It's miserable. It's damp. It's cold. It's cloudy. I mean, uh, it, it, and, and they're out there, and noise is happening, and bands are playing, and everything's going on and off and everything. And she, at the end of the interview, kind of turns to them and says, well, why are you out here? I mean, you, you could, I mean, she doesn't say this, but it, it implied in that is the kind, of, you know, you could be having coffee, you could be reading the paper, you could be in bed, you could be sleeping. I mean, almost anything you could think of would be more pleasant than out here on this cold, wet morning uh, uh, doing this stuff. And, and, and the woman she's interviewing points, and I think it's really important to note that she points, and she points to the other side and says, because if we, don't out, if we aren't out here marching, they will take over. And I thought when I heard this that, that if you understand that statement and that pointing, you understand all you need to know about Balfax politics. I mean, it's all there about it. And what the notion of a hostile peace is that it's it's the feeling that it's, it's the absence of a shared vision of the future. It's it's that unless I check the other side, I'm going to it may be a calm. It may be a calm situation surface on the surface. But unless I check the goals and aspirations of the other side at every point, I'm going to get a future that I couldn't live with. And so much of the, the conflict, much of Northern Ireland is a hostile peace. Much of whatever calm there is in the Middle East is a hostile peace. And increasingly, whatever uh, peace we find within the United States is a hostile peace. And I, and I think that the real challenge is how do we move to something that is more substantial and livable uh, than, than, a hostile, than the hostile kind of environment uh, that we are. Uh, it doesn't mean that we need agreement. I mean, I, I, I think agreement is great. I also think disagreement is great and vitally important, that it sharpens answers, it, it creates better uh, understandings. I mean, one of the things we say when we respect one another is that I don't have to take your conclusions seriously, but I have to take your analysis seriously. 
I mean, I have to tell you your analysis of what things are to be deadly serious is having traction with you. You might propose solutions that I disagree with and I don't have to agree with them, but I have to take and try to find what's the core of the analysis you're giving that is that is true. And, and disagreement focuses us in some positive ways about what, what those analyses are and what they uncover and what they point to, which makes us better people. So disagreement is an, it always is an investment in a relationship. That if I didn't, if if I didn't, if I didn't care about the relationships, I wouldn't care enough to disagree with you. I'd just simply go away. So that when I disagree, I'm caring about what the nature and state of that relationship is, and I owe you that respect. And and I think that's the challenge that we face here in the United States. Well, I think you've given people a lot to chew on, especially we're talking at a pretty high level, but folks are also going into Thanksgiving dinners this next week and uh, are going to have that political tension that often comes with sitting across from the family member that you deeply disagree with. So I hope that you've given them uh, some practical framework and just the even just the will and the desire to respect and honor the person sitting across from them. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate uh the conversation. I think people will find it really enlightening and hopefully uh, inspiring as well. It's my pleasure, Sam. I always enjoy talking to you.